I'd like for you to turn to the first chapter of the book of Genesis and verses 26 through 28. I want to preach this morning on the doctrine of man. And I want you to understand that when I use the term man or the word man, and I'm referring to mankind, you understand that, that humanity or human beings, both male and female, I have been accused of being a male chauvinist anyway, but when, I, when I'm using the term man, I'm talking about mankind, human beings, male and female. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The most important truth that any person will ever discover is the truth about Jesus Christ. And until he discovers that truth, he will not be able to discover any other truth. He will always be in search of knowledge, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth because Jesus Himself is truth. But second after that is coming to an understanding or coming to the truth about Himself. Now the psalmist must have been, um, as a little boy, tending his father's sheep one night. He looked out into the heavens. It's recorded in the 8th chapter of Psalms, the 8th Psalm. And he said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? I tell you, that's still a live issue, and it's still a good, important question. What is man? Because I'm convinced that man will never be able to rightly relate to his world, to himself or to God, until he understands who he is. And we're still asking that question, maybe not in the same way, But people everywhere are asking, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life? What is man? Still a viable and and still an important question. Landon Gilkey, the professor of religion at the University of Chicago, says, the function of 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 the religious traditions in every culture has been to achieve some kind of basic fundamental and valid understanding of the human. Who am I? What am I here for? What should I do? What fulfills me? Scientists who think science has answered these questions are mistaken. One of the reasons that people are going back to religion is that they don't know anymore who they are. That's one of the roles of religion, to supply a definition of the human, a picture of the human, an image of the human, a model of the human. Now maybe Gilkey was not completely correct. It may not be that 
that man has turned to religion to find the answer to the question, Who am I? But he has turned to the Scripture for that answer. And all through the Bible is the answer to the question, What is man? But no more in, than in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. For the basic, fundamental, foundational truth of, about man is found there. And that is the record of the creating God. And after he finished every phase of creation, he, he looked and he saw that it was good. So in verse 10, he saw what he'd created and said, it's good. In verse 12, he saw what he created and said, it is good. In verse 18, he saw what he created and said, it is good. In verse 21 and verse 25, the same. But he comes to verse 31 and he surveys the creation of man, the goal of his creation, the pinnacle of his creative activity, and he surveyed the creation of man and said, it is very good. And immediately upon reading that, those words, it is very good, you and I know that we're reading ancient history and not current events because it would be impossible for anybody, much less God, to look upon this world and say of man, he is very good. As a matter of fact, you turn five chapters over to the sixth chapter of Genesis and the scripture says that God surveyed the creation of man and saw that every thought and in imagination of man's heart was evil continually and he was sorry that he'd ever made man. And I have a feeling this morning that if God surveys this creation of man, He would say the very same thing. I'm sorry that I ever created man. And the work of God through history has been this. God has been at work to bring man to a position to where He could say of him again, it is very good. There's only been one other time that He's ever been able to say that. Thirty years after the birth of His Son, Jesus, who lived in absolute submission to the Father's will, came fulfilling all righteousness to be baptized of John in the River Jordan. And God spoke from heaven and said, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He said of Him, It is very good. And the ultimate destiny of everybody here this morning, through Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, the ultimate goal that God has for every one of us is to bring us back through Jesus Christ to that position where He can say again of man, He is very good. Now, God created man, named him Adam, because Adam is every man. He is both a historic person and a prophetic pattern. Now listen to me carefully. Everything Adam was, you can say about yourself. He was what man was meant to be, and he is what man has become. So that when you read the history of Adam, you're reading the history of your life. Everything that can be said about Adam can be said of you. He is every man. So there are four things that we need to, we need to see about the doctrine of man. First, man was and is created by God was and is created by God. Now if you remember reading the story of the creation, you know that there is progression and movement in the creation account. So that when God would create one phase, it would, the next 
time of creation, he would build upon that on the second day and the third day. And there was progression and movement in, in this flow of creation. But when he came to the end of the physical creation, and before he created man, the Bible says that he stopped. And there was this divine counsel that went on somewhere in eternity past. And then God said again, let us create man in our image. And it means that man is the creation of the divine plan of God. He is the culmination of a divine creation, a divine plan. And the psalmist said that man is fearfully and wonderfully made. The most important thing you can ever discover about yourself is that you are the creation of God, every bit of you, every part of you. It means that God created every aspect of your personality and temperament just like He wanted it. And you're the result of His creative activity. Your likes and dislikes, your temperament, your abilities and your inabilities. And I'm convinced that man will never be, never be satisfied with himself, never like himself until he understands that he is the design, the culmination of God's design and plan. Now, because there was this divine interlude, this divine pause, it means that man and the rest of creation are separate. Now watch carefully. Regardless of what you have heard, let me say this, deep conviction of mine. Man is not the highest form of animal life. Now, you may read in, in your books at school, or you may have read, that man is the highest form of animal life. He is not the highest form of animal life. Man is a separate creation from everything else, and he is not just the end of the, of the evolutionary process, as Darwin said, a march to perfection. Man is not the highest form of animal life. Now, somebody said to me not too long ago, he said, well, you know, he said, I'm having some problems with all these discoveries that, that scientists are making now about these prehistoric, you know, about prehistoric man, Neanderthal man, all of that. And he said, how do you reconcile the creation of Adam in the book of Genesis with the uncovering of these prehistoric man, uh, the, the prehistoric man? My answer to that is that if, that, that, that the discovery of prehistoric man only proves how little scientists know about man. That's not a man. Now just because we found some skeletons and some remains of, of an animal that stood on two feet, stood upright and walked on two feet and had a skull similar to ours, and had thumbs, doesn't mean that was a man. Let me tell you something. God could make a million Animals to stand upright, walk on two feet, and have thumbs and a skull similar to ours, and that not be a man. Let me tell you what a man is. A man is a separate creation of God who has a mind, an intellect, an emotion, and a will who's, in whose life there has been breathed the breath of God and he's created in the image of God, which means that he can relate to God and worship Him. That's a man. And everything else is a separate part of the creation of God apart from man. And there are those people who have said to me, uh, you know, I don't have time to get into the, to the uh, 
guess of evolution, but I've had people say to me, uh, you know, I say, I just can't believe the biblical account of creationism because you can't prove that. That's true, you can't. You can't take, this is not a book of science, this is a book about God. And it's true that you cannot take the story of creation from the Bible and prove that in a lab, but you can't prove the guess of evolution in a lab either. As a matter of fact, the same person who told me that he couldn't accept biblical creationism as a fact because it couldn't be proven has accepted the guess of evolution that cannot be proven. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that it takes me more faith to believe the guess of evolution than it does to believe the biblical account of creation. And so man was created in the image of God. Now what does that mean? Well, very simply, it means two things. Now I know this is simplistic, but it means to me two things. It means that man can relate to God. He can hear God. He has the capacity to know God. He has the ability to talk to God and commune with God. He has the capacity to relate to God. It means that man as this separate creature has been given a capacity to relate to his Creator in a way that's unique to man. Now this second chapter, verse 7, describes the creation of man. He says that God formed him out of the dust of the earth. That word is a, is a, is a word of a potter building, a, designing a vase. He formed him out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It means that man is both physical, a, both, both a physical and spiritual creature. Let me tell you what that means. It means that because he is physical creature, creation, he must have physical food to survive. And in order for his life to be fulfilled and complete, he must relate to a physical world and he must have physical experiences. You put a person off in isolation with no physical experiences and no way to relate to his physical world and his life is empty and incomplete. But also because he is a spiritual being, he must have spiritual food to survive. And in order for his life to be full and complete, he must relate to the spiritual world and he must have spiritual experiences. As a matter of fact, his spiritual life is more important than his physical life. And so God says to Adam, you eat of this tree in the midst of the garden and you will die. And the Bible says that he ate of that tree and lived hundreds of years after that. And somebody in my Sunday school class said, well, wait a minute. The Bible says God says if you eat of this tree, you'll die. What does that mean? He didn't die. He lived hundreds of years after that. Well, it means that he died spiritually. Immediately upon disobeying God, he died spiritually and ultimately died physically because what we are spiritually, we ultimately become physically. Now watch this. What we are on the inside ultimately is reflected on the outside. And what we are spiritually, we ultimately become physically. I mean, we don't have to have confession time in this church service and people get up and confess their sins to tell who is backslidden from God. You can't keep people from knowing that. For what you are in your heart is reflected in your face. And that's why there's so much... You know, so many people warring among themselves. There's war in their heart. And that's why there's so much bitterness in the world. There's bitterness in our heart. For what we are internally, spiritually, we become physically. And so he died while he was on his way to die. Not only does it mean that man is, both, is a physical being and spiritual being that can relate to God, 
To be born in the image of God means that man has been given the capacity to represent God. Now, I've mentioned this before. Let me just brush it in passing. God created man to be an extension of His presence through whom He could invade the time-space arena. And He meant man for man to be an exhibition of His personality, an expression of His personality. When are you most like God? When you're noble and kind and loving and forgiving. And so God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. He put man on the face of the earth so that man could reflect what God was like. And He meant man for man to be an exhibit of the power is created by God. I've got to hurry, secondly. I just have time to mention the second and go to third and fourth. Man is dependent upon God and cannot live without Him. I want to say that again. I hope you'll understand this. I hope you'll get this. Man is dependent upon God and he cannot live without Him. When I was a kid growing up, our next-door neighbor, really it was a next-field neighbor, lived about a mile from us out in the country. And uh, he was kind of an agnostic, uh, an old bachelor, just really an agnostic guy. And one day my uh, father and some other men went to talk to him about becoming Christians during a revival meeting, second week in August. The guy's name was Junior Hendricks. When they went and talked to him, I never will forget my father coming back and telling my mother that, 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 that Junior said, now, you know, he said, there, you know, there's no God. He said, if there's a God, why don't you strike me dead right now? He said, he just kind of turned his face toward heaven and said, God, if you're really a God, strike me dead, I dare you. And he said, when he didn't strike him dead, Junior looked at him and said, see, there is no God. That don't prove there is no God. It proves that God's in mercy endures forever. That's what that proves. Now, we talk about the fact that man is an immortal soul. Man's not an immortal soul. That may shock you a little bit. Man is not an immortal soul. Man does not live in and of himself. He lives because God gives him permission to live. And so Daniel's interpretation of Belshazzar's vision of the handwriting on the wall was... The God in whose hand thy breath is, thou hast not glorified. Let me paraphrase that statement. It's, the statement is this, that when God shuts His hand, you don't have another breath. Now that's pretty staggering. It says this, that God gives you your life a breath at a time, and when He closes His hand, you have had your last breath. And so the Apostle Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens and said, I observe that you people have these gods you worship and even an, an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God, he said. And he gave him the account of the creation and then said, In Him we live and move and have our being and by Him we exist. God, man is dependent upon God and cannot live without Him. Number three. Man is accountable to God. Now if there's anything in this story, that, that is the truth of this story. Man is accountable to God. Now if you want to see how far we have come from our original creation position, you just look and see how much people resist and reject authority. And this campaign that exists in our world to reject all authority is not new 
to, 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 you know, to, to teenagers in America. That's the primal sin. For basic to man is his rejection of authority. Now there are several reasons why man is accountable to God. But there are two basic reasons I want to mention. One is because God gave man a choice in the first place. Now the interesting thing about creation is that God didn't program man to act like God wanted him to act if the person didn't want to act like that. He could have done that. You know, sometimes I get to thinking about why didn't God just program us, fix us so that, that we'd just do what He wanted us to do, you see. He could have done that, but He didn't. Watch this carefully. He gave man the freedom to choose the way he wants to act. But with that choice comes responsibility and accountability every time. Now, if you're going to have the freedom to choose and to make choices, then you're going to have to understand that there's accountability and responsibility that goes with that freedom. The second reason why a man is accountable is because God gave him a command. He gave him a choice, and He gave him a command, and this was the command. He said, I'm going to put in the garden this tree in the midst of the garden. Now of all the other trees in the garden, you can eat of all the other trees, but this one tree, you cannot eat of that. You leave that alone. Man is to live not in the middle, but from the middle of life. And the middle of life is, is God and God's will. He said, now, you cannot eat of that tree in the garden. That's the command. And man was given that choice. In the beginning, man's mind, I tried to explain this in the early service, and I failed, and I spent a little time trying to work on it in the Sunday school class, so I'd be ready for it now. When God originally created us, He gave us a mind, and He meant for that mind to be a receiver and not a calculator. Now let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. He meant for us to use our mind to receive His Word and obey it. Not to take His Word and calculate right and wrong on the basis of what we understand. So He put man in the garden, He gave him a mind to receive His Word, and He meant for man just to obey Him, just trust me. He just wanted man to trust Him. And so the moment came, and this is the, here's the decision. Am I going to receive God's Word and obey it? Or am I going to calculate and make a decision on my own? And man made the wrong choice. And ever since that day, man has not just taken God's Word and obeyed it. He calculates on the basis of his understanding of right and wrong. That's what you're doing right now. Every time I stand in this pulpit and preach, I can, you know, I can work all week and get a sermon. I can get up here and, and preach as hard as I can preach. And you don't take biblical truth and just obey it. Most of you don't. You take biblical truth and you parade that before the jury of your mind and then you decide on the basis of what you understand what you're going to do. Especially is that true when I preach on tithing, which is very seldom. But I, may, I, I'll get a, I preach biblical truth as best I can, and, 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 and you take that biblical truth from God. Evidently, you know, I, I, it, it, it must be that I'm from God. I, I, I'm chosen of God. I've been called to preach. 
and you take that biblical truth and you pass that before the jury of your mind and you choose between right and wrong on the basis of your ability to reckon right and wrong. Now that's, that's all right except for one problem. Is that when man sins, when man sinned, it destroyed his capacity to make a right conclusion. So a guy says to me sometime, he says, now, I just don't understand biblical truth. I don't understand. If I could understand all that, that's the truth. You don't. And listen to me carefully. This is the paradox of the whole thing. The farther we get away from God, the more necessary it is for us to exercise faith in Him because the result of, moral, of our moral contamination and pollution as a result of sin is that it destroys our ability to make a proper conclusion and a proper decision. Isn't that amazing? And so man, accountable to God, made the wrong choice and had to be accountable to Him for that. One last thought. Man stands guilty before God and is in need of redemption. Now listen carefully. The question is, of what is man guilty? And here's the answer. The primal sin of man is that he has chosen not to be made in the image of God. He has chosen to be God. Now there's not a single person here this morning who would say, now wait a minute, preacher. Everybody would say, wait a minute, preacher. I have not chosen to be God. Yes, you have. If you have not chosen to be governed by the sovereignty of God, then you have chosen to be God yourself. And that's man's primal guilt. And so the serpent came and to Adam and Eve, and for the first time they were confronted with somebody who didn't trust God. And for the first time, suspicion was introduced into the garden about God. They'd never encountered that before. And for the first time, they were, they were confronted with a mistrust of God. And this was the temptation. You eat of this tree and you will be like God. And they thought, wow, I, this, is, this is pretty big time stuff. If I eat of this fruit, then I'm stepping out on my own. And, and this choice will lift me above the level of inferior beings. For the first time, listen folks, their choice in the garden didn't determine who was sovereign. That's almost too silly to even to refer to, to, to mention. I mean, their choice didn't really destroy the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God was established in creation. What happened was that when they made that choice, that decision, and they took that step they thought was to freedom, what happened was they stepped into a false position. For existence apart from God is not freedom. It's life in a false position. And when they made that choice, they gave up their right to who they were and who they were meant to be. Let me see if I can illustrate it. J.P. Allen used to have this little parable he'd tell at the seminary. Imagine, if you will, these, this laboratory filled with robots. 
and they are controlled by this master behind the glass window in the, in the laboratory, and he's connected so that he gets through to them, and they're moving about in that laboratory according to his plan and design. And there's harmony and there's fulfillment of design and fulfillment of purpose. And when these robots approach each other, their guided sister system moves them about and they don't collide and they're just, there's harmony and there's purpose and there's design and everybody's happy. It's the way. And what you could describe this, how you could describe this would be, this is a cosmos. But one day one of those robots discovers that by disconnecting a wire behind the breastplate, he's no longer connected to the, to the master behind the control room. He can't get through to him anymore. Now he's free. And that freedom becomes like heady wine. And all of a sudden he's not of the way. And there's chaos and fulfillment of design is lost. And, and he starts disconnecting the rest of them and they run together and there's no longer unity and there's no longer design and fulfillment of purpose and how you describe it is chaos. What's going to happen there? Well, it's obvious that they can't be as smart as the master behind the glass in the control room. Their only hope is that he'll have mercy enough to come back down and reconnect them so they can operate on the basis of the design and the plan and the purpose. Now I know you all are not robots, but there is a relationship in that parable to the fact that man and all have sinned, has gotten out of the way, and the sentence of death is upon us. And our only hope is that somehow the master will step down and restore the normal function. That's what's called redemption. That's redemption. That God in His mercy comes back down to earth and returns man to the normal function and restores him again to the intention. And the most beautiful part of the creation account is not when God created man and put him in a beautiful garden. Listen to me. The most beautiful part of creation is is one day when he came walking in the cool of the evening and called for man and found that he was hiding and that he'd sinned and that man had taken by the work of his hands and covered himself by the work of his hands. And the beauty of it is that God took an animal and slew it and by the work of his hands he provided a covering for man's sins and man throughout the ages has brought the unidentified lamb to cover his sin. But one day God took the identified lamb, the lamb of God, the one supreme sacrifice, propitiation, covering for man's sin, and laid him on the altar for man's redemption. That's the most beautiful part of all of it. And so Bob Slocum, the engineer, an engineer at NASA said, I've discovered that Jesus Christ is the God behind the universe and that the most important question is not, is God real to me, but am I real to God? And this idea took hold of me that God in Christ loves me and takes me seriously. And so I have begun the experience of placing my life in His hands and I've set out to discover what it means to serve Him. 
Now here's the story of man. Created in the image of God. Accountable to God. Only can live and exist because God permits him. And man, fallen from God. And lost. And his only hope is that God in mercy will come again and return him, restore him, redeem him. And thus he's done in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, listen to me, you can be returned ultimately to the position where God can say again, He is very good. There are three you's here this morning. There is the you you think you are. There is the you others think you are. There is the you God knows you are and can become. What I want to urge you to do this morning is to place your life in God's hands and begin to discover the experience of what it means to be returned Restored, redeemed. Discover what it means to serve Him. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. In a moment we're going to have prayer and then we'll have invitation. The invitations are for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Separated from God, by your own choice and decision, you've chosen your way. Cut off from God, lost. He has chosen to redeem you in the person of His Son, but you must place your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, for redemption. Maybe you did that in Bible school. You want to come publicly and declare your faith in Christ to be baptized. There are lost people here, fathers and mothers, who have never placed faith in Christ. I invite you to do that. In a moment, we're going to pray. I will invite you, I ask you to place your faith in Christ and invite Him into your heart. You may need to come and join the church or come to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, the object of God's love, the culmination of God's design. Are you, would you come to Him this morning? Obedient to Him. While we pray, you just let God speak to your heart. When we give invitation, we invite you to come. Father, I pray that Your will will be done in this invitation time. And that we'll respond positively to the call that You give to our heart. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now in the spirit of prayer, I invite you to come. While we stand and while the choir sings, would you come? Would you come?